This episode of Pop Culture Affidavit is brought to you by the Human Fund. Money for people. Pop Culture Affidavit episode 104, Festivus 2019. And welcome to episode 104 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this episode is the fourth in what has become a tradition that started in 2016, and that is the celebration of Festivus, the holiday for the rest of us. And just like the past three years, a guest and I are going to air our grievances and complete a feat of strength. My past guests have been Podcast Hall of Famer Michael Bailey, Latvarian Envoy to the United States Professor Allen, and the Irredeemable Shag. And for this year, I thought it only appropriate that I get Shag's partner in Finding Your Joy, the water half of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Rob Kelly. How are you doing, Rob? I'm doing great, Tom. Thank you for having me here. And I, I will say I'm a little shocked that it took you this long to get to me uh, on a show that's all about airing grievances. Because, I mean, you know, that's, that's that's my brand. So, But I'm, I'm glad to finally be here. One year, maybe I'll get Diablo Frank on. on and, oh, uh, my God. <laughs> oh, man. Show over at that point. <laughs> that file's going to be a gigabyte. <laughs> So, before we actually get into our celebration, I'm going to give a very brief overview of what Festivus is and how it's celebrated and how we celebrate it here on Pop Culture Affidavit. If you want a really in-depth exploration of the holiday, go back to the very first episode on that I did for Festivus. It was episode 70. It was uh, December 23rd of 2016. In that one, I went into the background uh, pretty thoroughly. But the gist of it is that we know Festivus as pop culture anyway, from a 1997 episode of Seinfeld called The Strike. In that episode, Frank Costanza, father of George, decides to resurrect an old family tradition called Festivus, and he tells the origin to Kramer. Many Christmases ago, I went to buy a doll for my son. I reached for the last one they had, but so did another man. As I rained blows upon him, I realized there had to be another way. What happened to the doll? It was destroyed. But out of that, a new holiday was born. A Festivus for the rest of us. That must have been some kind of doll. She was. Festivus consists of three main traditions. The first is an undecorated aluminum pole replacing a Christmas tree. The second is the airing of grievances where you gather around the table and tell everyone who is present how they have disappointed you in the past year. The third is the feats of strength. Now, here on this show, we uh, observe the latter two by airing our pop culture grievances and completing the feats of strength, which is reading and reviewing a comic from the 90s. So, Rob, are you ready for this? Well, I don't know. We'll find out. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's go ahead and get into our first segment, and this is the airing of grievances. (laughs) 
And the idea here is that uh, we are going to complain about two things that have been bothering us for the past year in popular culture. I'm glad that I have Rob on this because I did have Shag last year, and now I get to fully complete my role as the Emperor Palpatine to their Luke Skywalker (laughs) and make the Find Your Joy guys participate in a good old-fashioned bitch session. That doesn't involve Rob complaining about the Legion of Superheroes uh, or the Forever People again. No. I've moved on. I have other things that annoy me. Yeah, because uh, we are each going to talk about two things in popular culture that have annoyed us. So, Rob, you are the guest. Go ahead with your first one. All right. Well, I like you said you asked me to get two things, but you didn't ask me what they were before we were recorded. So I'm, I'm yeah, we're, yeah, we're, 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 we're coming blind here a little yes, bit. Yes. I have one big one and one very, very tiny one in terms of how much people know about it and, you know, the, like the size of it. So which one do you want me to do, the big one or the very small one? You can go ahead and start small. All right. Let's start small. OK, um, I, this is a very, very tiny, tiny, tiny thing. And I think only very few people it bothers, but it, it eats away at me. And it's been going on a lot uh, last couple of years, but this year is so so bad that I actually finally had to take some action. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. No surprise. I create a lot of podcasts, so I feel like I should listen to a lot of podcasts. And a lot of them are about um, uh, film and TV, certainly pop culture, there you yeah. know, uh, things like that. And one of the things that drives me nuts, and, and because I listen to a lot of podcasts um, about movies, uh, they, a lot of the hosts uh, or guests t- uh, tend to be people who maybe have some connection to the business or cover the business mm-hmm. in some way. They're not just like me who really doesn't have any connection to it at all i'm just talking about it it's it's people that have some inroad in some capacity yeah. to the movie or tv business okay the thing that drives me absolutely insane is when people like that and these hosts start forgetting like that they live an incredibly rarefied life in, in engaging film and tv and they start complaining on air about how tired they are having to quote like cover the Oscars. It's like, <laughs> are you effing kidding me? And this started on a couple of shows. I won't get into the one that I'm really thinking of because I just don't, you know. While this show is about the airing of grievances, I don't necessarily want to trash somebody. Specific. Oh yeah, yeah, that's not what we're here for. So, right, 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 right. But there was one show where all the hosts complain about having to go to so many movie premieres, and I am just like, are Do you hear yourselves? I mean, look, I get it. It's work. I understand. Like anything, if you have to do it enough and you have to do it where you have to do it like in the late in the middle of the night or you do it without a lot of sleep, I get it. It becomes work. Everything, no matter how much you enjoy it, becomes work. Podcast for me becomes work after a while. You know, like you talked about just dealing with shag. That's work. (laughs) So it's like – I, I get it, but at the same time, like, th- take a breath and think about how that sounds on a show when you are talking to regular people and you are like, oh, I got flown out to Sundance and I had to see three movies in one day. I'm just so burnt out. <sighs> I, I'm like I want I want to reach into my phone and strangle these people. It's like, are you out of your minds? And there there got to be a point where one show it got so bad. I in this year I literally had to stop listening to it. I'm like I can't take this anymore because these people are so effing clueless about how they sound. And I just that drove me nuts. And I'm like, 
I don't know. Like, do they not get any feedback from anybody? I never complain about somebody's podcast. I just don't listen. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, do your show how you want to do it. I, you know, we get feedback from people sometimes that's negative, And I, you know, if it's something really crazy, I just I'm like, whatever, dude, don't listen to the show. If you don't I like don't it. Get feedback. You know, but like we get lots of feedback. But yeah. you know what I mean? Sometimes I mean, I get sometimes, uh, especially the Pod Dylan show, I get feedback from people that are like, why do you do the show like this? I'm like, because that's the way I want to do it. Oh, yeah. If you, don't, if you don't like it, don't listen to it. Go find another show. But the like just this drove me nuts about people that are lucky enough. And I know they've earned it. I know they've earned it where they weren't just plucked out of nothing. But people that are living and doing things that the average person would kill to do. Try and be a little mindful about how com- about complaining about how tired you are having to go to see three movies in a day like that. You just like, Oh my God, that drove me nuts. So that was, I know that's like, that only bugs like eight people. I know, but it it's stuck in my cross so bad that I literally had to take one show out of my feed. So that's my minor one for the year. Well, there's, there's also the fact that like you know there are people there are there are people in that business and and any business really who will complain about these things where like you know something that they had a passion for is starting to feel like it's a job. Sure, and. Of uh, there's like a, I don't like to use the tip. A tipping point is probably one of the best phrases for it. But there's like a tipping point where either they uh, do some self reflection and realize that you know this is so much of a job that maybe I am burned out and I either need a break, um, and I walk away right, for a short sure, time, or I walk away entirely. There are people who have left. Um, you know, I mean, this this can apply to just about any industry. This applies to teaching. You know, they have left the profession because it's just like I can't do this anymore. It's time. Um, but then there are also the people who, and, and I think this is like more the lines where you take you are talking about. They'll do the complaining and then they'll go back and they'll just go do it anyway. Like they'll they'll go to the things anyway and they'll they'll act so put upon that they have to do these things and it's like, you know. I get it. I get it's probably wearing you and you're probably tired, but at the same time, like, you know, there are, there's probably other people who are young and hungry who want, who want the, who want to go to this premiere, who want to get this assignment as coverage. That's the other thing. Like for a lot of these people, it's not, um, it's not, a. Uh, it's not being invited to a party. It's work, and there are people who want the byline. You know, they want the. Sure. They need the credit. They need the credit in their portfolio. And you're complaining about it is exacerbating that. And and when you complain about it and you, and you just do it, and then you keep complaining about it after a while, it's like you do your sympathy goes. To, your sympathy for that goes down and down because it's just like okay, now you're just complaining. You know, yet yeah, you still yeah. do it. You know. <laughs> I, I try to be very mindful of never complaining about how tired I am if I'm staying up late recording a podcast because yeah. I'm doing it to myself. Oh, I yeah, know yeah. really making me do this. So, yeah. if you know, so that's I don't mind complaining about how tired I am from being at work because I have to be there. But I'm choosing to stay up till two in the morning uh, talking about some silly thing. And yeah. if I'm tired the next day, that's my own fault. Nobody. So it's just like when I hear somebody be like, oh, man, I had to go all the way to Paris to go to this film junket for Disney. I'm so so burnt out. Uh, like I want to like do a scanners thing over the podcast and like, blow their heads up. It's yeah. just, uh, I just I guess the, I guess if if you were a if you were a, a journalist for entertainment and you had and you were under the impression that if I go to the premiere for the Emoji movie or some like real piece of shit. Oh, like, I'm you know, sure. Right. If I do sure. this and I go to enough of these, they'll give me 
Endgame or right, you know, right, they'll give sure. me the big ticket one. They'll give me the Oscar buzz ones. Like you know, I'm you got to pay your dues. Dude. Sure. And sure. if and if and if it never comes to fruition, then I guess I can totally see you being complaining about it. And and but 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 you probably are hitting the point where like where you are doing that self examination of like. You know, is this really worth it? I, I don't seem to get, I don't, you know, I, I tr- keep trying to get the bigger assignment. I keep trying to get the bigger premiere, the bigger interview, and they keep giving me this shit. <laughs> so, but you're totally right. But one thing I have noticed in some podcasts, and I, and I had to stop listening to a couple that do cover pop culture, is when they, like, have actors and actresses on to talk, or producers or writers or whatever, to talk about their project, or perhaps whatever they happen to cover something, you know, like, it's an... I don't know. They have like an actor who was in like uh, a superhero movie a decade ago, you know, whatever. And the interview is obviously more about the host than it is about the actor. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. grates on me so much. I'm just <laughs> screaming at my iPod, like, please shut up and let this person talk. They don't. I don't care about your stupid, like, silly little quips. The <laughs> <laughs> granted, like I said in a past episode, a past recording, in those situations, I'm Chris Farley, you know? That right, awesome. right, yeah. <laughs> stupid. You remember <laughs> when you were in that movie? <laughs> uh, speaking of somebody who was on the Chris Farley show back in the day, my first one has to do with Martin Scorsese. Oh, no. <laughs> now, here is the – this is it's starting off with the question. A, why was anybody, A, upset with him, or B, even remotely surprised at what he said? earlier this year. So earlier this year, for some background, Scorsese was asked by Empire Magazine about the Marvel films, and he said that he tried to watch a few, but he didn't like them, and compared them to a theme park ride, meaning that there are a lot of style and flash, but they don't really have uh, the substance to be called true cinema with a capital C. The internet blew up with pissing and moaning because that's the internet's default setting, but, you know, fanboy rage. So he wrote an op-ed for the New York Times where he attempted to clarify things. He basically pointed out that his formative years of learning about movies and film were learning about film as an art. He points out how Hitchcock towed the line between, for lack of a better comparison, and these are my words, not his, movies and film with a capital F. And, you know, Hitchcock had his tropes in his style. And while he does outwardly and honestly recognize the talent, artistry, and work that the individual filmmakers and actors have put into Marvel films and other movies of that, you know, popcorn flicks. Um, he can't help but see them as corporate products that were assembled rather than crafted. He then turns his, this toward the movie industry. And I'm going to read the last couple of paragraphs of his piece because I really think it's important to kind of clarify his position because people really lost their shit over this. In the past 20 years, as we all know, the movie business has changed on all fronts, but the most ominous change has happened stealthily and under cover of night, the gradual but steady elimination of risk. Many films today are perfect products manufactured for immediate consumption. Many of them are well made by teams of talented individuals. All the same, they lack something essential to cinema, the unifying vision of an individual artist, because, of course, the individual artist is the riskiest factor of all. I'm certainly not implying that movies should be a subsidized art form or that they ever were when the Hollywood studio system was still alive and well, the tension between artists and the people who ran the business was a const- was constant and intense, but it was pr- a productive tension that made us some of the greatest films ever made in the words of Bob Dylan. The best of them were quote heroic and visionary today. That tension is gone and there are some in the business with absolute indifference to the very question of art and an attitude toward the history of cinema that is both dismissive and proprietary a lethal combination. 
The situation, sadly, is that we now have two separate fields. There's worldwide audiovisual entertainment and there's cinema. They still overlap from time to time, but that's becoming increasingly rare. And I fear that the financial dominance of one is being used to marginalize and even belittle the existence of the other. For anyone who dreams of making movies or is just starting out, the situation at this moment is brutal and inhospitable to art. And the act of simply writing those words fills me with terrible sadness. Now, I know that was a lot for me to quote there, but like I said, I thought it was necessary because I thought it does kind of qualify where he's coming from. And my first reaction upon seeing um, that was actually not anger at Scorsese, because while I think that he is definitely being a little pretentious, uh, he's not completely wrong. I mean... Uh, I mean, I don't think I'm off base in slightly agreeing with him, even though I should state for the record that I enjoy the MCU and I fucking loved Endgame. But also, and this goes to the the journalist, as we were just talking about journalists, why is Empire Magazine interviewing him about this? (laughs) When have you known Martin Scorsese to be the type of person who is going to walk up to Kevin Feige and ask him if he could direct, like, Namor the Submariner? (laughs) I'd love to see that. (laughs) Why didn't they interview George Lucas? The man literally made a Flash Gordon space western starring a kid who loved playing around in his hot rod. <laughs> or, or get an updated from comic from uh, Spielberg, because Steven Spielberg actually praised the MCU back in 2016. And again, I mean, don't people like the people who get upset about this? Don't they know who Martin Scorsese is? I mean, Christopher Nolan is kind of the exception to the rule because Christopher Nolan has made some very, very kind of like cinematic films in that sense i think you know memento i think qualifies as something that kind of is a little more in line with like something you'd see out of a out of a type of like scorsese but he also made the dark knight movies and then you have Zack snyder and it's not todd phillips but you know whatever call me back when snyder and phillips adapt an edith wharton novel so (laughs) anyway my point is it's like don't get all pissed off at martin scorsese for saying this because it's Martin Scorsese. And second, like, <laughs> he's kind of right. I mean, you know, like, I mean, we can like both. But he is right about the corporatization of things. And that's what really, really frustrates me, too. And that the the whole idea of movie by focus group, because we've seen it time and again in the last decade or so. <laughs> so am yeah. I wrong? <laughs> I, well, now it's it's kind. Of, this is a little embarrassing because that was going to be my other one, <laughs> Scorsese. But I'm t- I t- luckily you took a different tack on it okay. than, than I would say because the reason and and I'll I'll address your points in a second. Just when I get into yeah. mine, it's like the reason this annoyed me is because I'm like you. I saw both sides of it. Yeah. And I and I listened to both sides defending each side, and I was I, I agreed with both, and I was angry at both. Because they were both at the simultaneously wrong and right, and that drove me nuts. Yeah. Because on the one hand, uh, there was a lot of "shut up, old man, what do you know?" Okay, boomer. And 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 yeah, right. Okay, boomer. And that's that drives me nuts because I, you know, it's unfortunate that there is a strain of fanboy, as we all know now, uh. who are, is just like, "Give me what I want, and f you if I don't get it exactly the way I want, and I will burn this effort down if I don't get it." Release the Snyder and, cut. Release the Snyder Cut. I mean, look, if Jack Kirby was alive today and on Twitter, 
Well, he wouldn't be wasting his time. But if he was on, but if he was alive today and he was on Twitter, there would be so many fans telling him, "Shut up, old man! Don't get in the way of my Marvel movies." You in know, the, in the time it takes Ethan Van Skyver to make two ridiculously bigoted tweets, Jack Kirby would have written five comic books. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Right? Kirby would not waste his time. But if he was around and he was trying to, you know, get a cut of the the of the the profits yeah. from these movies, there would be so many people saying, "What do you know?" Blah 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 blah. You know that. Co- all of a sudden, all these fanboys would be uh, lawyers, yeah. the contract lawyers, and they would oh, yeah. be telling him. So in, in a weird way, it's like, thank God he's been gone a long time and his legend is secure and mm-hmm. people can people can worship him from from the safe distance of being a historical figure, kind of like MLK. You know, it's like, oh, it's the you know, Republicans love him now. But back in the <laughs> 60s, not so much. But uh, but so there's so there's that. And that's not fair because Martin Scorsese is one of the few walking uh, auteurs, one of the yeah. few people in, in an age where the word visionary is just applied to every goddamn director that's ever made a movie. That's I mean, when 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 you have the credit from visionary director Gore, Verbinski, that word has lost all its meaning. Um, but Martin Scorsese is one of the true people whose films are his films. They are unlike anything else, and yeah. they are in, they are completely indis- uh, completely distinguishable from any other kinds of films. So I, I hated to see that his quote was kind of so bastardized and that the empire, I'm sure that empire writer, as soon as he got that quote was like, Oh, this is going to be boy. This oh, is yeah. juicy. As opposed to, clickbait as opposed to saying, well, can you clarify a little? Because clearly Martin Scorsese was meant really all, everything in that quote. He should have ended it with pause for me. Yeah. You know, for me, of course, he doesn't like these movies. Why would he? He doesn't. He hasn't grown up on this stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I when I watched Endgame for the first time and spoiler alert, Thor hacks off Thanos's head mm-hmm. and they're like, why did you do that? And he's like, I went, you know, I went for the head and he walks out of the, the cabin and they and that they do that soft focus shot. I actually really got emotionally wrapped up in that because I had a lifetime of following this character mm-hmm. in the comic books and in the movies. And I was like, this guy failed. This guy, it really yeah. hit me emotionally. And Martin Scorsese was saying, well, these things don't hit me. Well, of course they don't. Cause he just, yeah. the stuff is just, it's kind of like the way I watch Harry Potter movies. Mm-hmm. That stuff doesn't do anything for me emotionally. Cause I didn't grow up on those books. Yeah. You know what I mean? But if I would never say they don't work for anyone, of yeah. course they do. That's a, that's a, so I just wish that someone had maybe taken him aside and said, wait a minute, let's just clarify what you're saying, because I don't think you kind of mean what you mean. And he's smart enough to be like, oh, no, of course. You know, no, no, yeah. I, that I that t- totally interesting. So it, so it bothered me that that a man of his caliber was just immediately kind of dragged into the public square, and it was like, oh, let's kick this, let's kick this little Italian guy, and that just bothered me. A yeah, lot. yeah, and you're right. I think that he would fully acknowledge that he's not necessarily the intended audience. No, not either. Even in, in the same way that, um, uh, you know, I see some of the stuff that you know that's meant for younger kids. You know, or or reboots of things that were out when we were kids. Um, like uh, I've actually seen some of the seasons of the new She-Ra cartoon because Brett's been watching it on Netflix. Totally not, totally not targeted at me. Although I thought it was actually pretty enjoyable. So if I didn't like it, it's like I'm not going to go out there and say, "How dare you make a cartoon yeah. that's you know <laughs> meant for meant for younger people, not to cater for me." But you're right. Like you know, but the whole point of the the kind of like the soullessness he was pointing out in in a sense. Um, that I did have a bone of contention with that because while it is not as deep 
in some cases as some other pieces. You look at there there is an emotional investment that you're right that we make and and I'm the bad Marvel Cinematic Universe fan because Marvel with the exception of like the X-Men and selected Spider-Man stories is a huge comics blind spot for me. I don't uh, you know I I when I've gotten to comic collecting was because of Batman. So I have you know so I've had so much fun watching Crisis on Infinite Earths for the last week because mm-hmm. I'm just sitting there going yeah more more more. But I will tell you that when we're in we're in the big final battle and i hear on your left and everything oh, opens yeah. up and there's a double page george perez splash on my <laughs> screen i was getting goosebumps and i hear avengers and i just was sitting in that chair going yeah 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 like 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 beavis's cornholio yeah 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 and he said a symbol, and i was like and, and, and I, I was very quiet because I'm not an asshole in the movie theater and yelling, but I was just inside. I was like, yeah, like I was so pumped. And, you know, that's because that's the, what they wanted us. So they got me. But at the same time, like I sat there and I was like, you know, that but but you're right with like the Harry Potter movies. You know, I'm not really. a. But my son is, you know, so. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. But anyway, you're right. And 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 um, and again, it's just that that whole thing with um with the fact that, like, you know, again, like I was saying, like, he's not the one to answer, ask the question to. You know, right. and Coppola had come around and said something else. And I'm like, whatever, Francis. Well, well like, OK. See, but I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned so what, that. Yeah, why I, don't you I, get I, into I, your your. Right. So you're, this is your second grievance. So we're kind of covering right. two and one. So right. you get into your points. So the, the other half of that argument, which is the flip side, yeah. was where I, I heard a podcast and they were debating uh, this very topic. And the person that was kind of pro Scorsese had this argument of. Well, Martin Scorsese is one of the geniuses of cinema, mm-hmm. so he is basically of um, you. He cannot be faulted, and if there's anybody that can define what cinema is, it's him. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa! No one, not Martin Scorsese, not Paul Thomas Anderson, not Woody Allen, not the uh, animated corpse of Orson Welles, has the right to define what cinema is. Cinema is a series of still images projected at a speed to replicate movement, not even necessarily with sound. That is what cinema is. And there is nobody who gets to say, I decide what is cinema. And that drove me nuts that there were these sort of Scorsese filators that were like, well, he should be able to just say he's right because who else knows more than this guy? I'm like. No, that is absolutely not true. Martin Scorsese has made a couple of, of cruddy movies in his lifetime. Yeah. Are they are they more art than, say, Ant-Man and the Wasp? Yeah, of course. But I'm glad you brought up Coppola mm-hmm. because when Coppola piled on, that really got my back up because – and I'm going to stress this. I will never, ever side with a corporation – over an individual creator or or an empl- even an employee, not even yeah. a creator, an employee. I will never side with a corporation, as we talked about on our mental uh, health episode of uh, FW Presents over on our network. I full-on believe capitalism is killing most of us, so I – do not believe in corporations having like more of a say than I don't think they should have virtually a say at all. Yeah. That said, that said, I hated Coppola like, oh, these goddamn corporations, blah, 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 because he was one of the guys who in the coming out of the 70s was really one of the, the guys that brought about that change of like 
in the seventies, these studios didn't know what was selling. So they were like, look, let's just make, let's make taxi driver. Maybe that'll make money. We don't know anymore. And Coppola was one of the guys who took all of those chits that he earned from some of the greatest films ever made. Mm -hmm. Clearly Godfather wanted to the conversation, no doubt. But then he went a little nuts and started making movies like the cotton club and one from the heart and apocalypse now, which of course a masterpiece, but he was one of those guys that took the studio's money and then just went batshit crazy. Yeah. And spent, you know, a hundred million dollars on like a musical that nobody went to see. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, it's like, well, you keep screwing over the money people. The money people are eventually going to screw you over. They're going to get tired of it. And of course, if you're a studio head and you gave all this money to Francis Ford Coppola to make these crazy ass movies that run super over budget. You know, and and go crazy and like, oh, they're you know, we've been shooting this thing for two years and we don't even know where half our cast is. Well, of course, you are then going to say, let's maybe make some more sequels because we can kind of like control them a little more. That's just basic human nature. So it was a little like maybe if you guys had shown a little more, you'd been a little more circumspect about how you spent other people's money chasing your cinematic dreams, maybe corporations wouldn't have been so quick to jump in and just be like take control of everything which is where we are now where it's like four companies that own everything well yeah and and, and it's um you know with coppola and and mike uh back uh in the in the last uh waning days of uh of in country luke jack and eddie and i sat down and talked about the deer hunter michael Cimino is like one of the prime examples of like personally destroying a studio with heaven's yeah, gate. Yeah. Um, but you're right. So Coppola gets into this, you know, period and even, even on some level, like, you know, Lucas, uh, Lucas was kind of there in a sense because he had a couple of real duds in the mid eighties. Um, you know, Howard, the doc, Howard, Howard, the doc, yeah, <laughs> Tucker did not. Well, t- Coppola and, and Lucas made Tucker together. And that from what I've understood, it's actually not as bad a movie as it was in terms of just how bad it did. And then I happen, I happen to really like Willow, but I know that didn't perform that underperformed. And by the time you get to 1989, you've got Indiana Jones, the last crusade, which is kind of like the comeback. But even Lucas himself, like when he made the prequels, he made the prequels with his own money. He just used Fox as the, uh, the distributor um but like you know spielberg you know spielberg through the mid to late 80s was kind of finding himself a little bit you know like if you look at some of the stuff that he put out but he didn't you know there he was still reliable but like coppola just basically was like i'm gonna go big <laughs> and i'm gonna if i'm gonna go big, i'm gonna go out i'm gonna go big and along come people like jerry bruckheimer and don simpson Right, these sort who, of really crass, money-crunching yeah, guys. who are right. just like, you know, um, and, and unfortunately Don Simpson passed away in the mid-90s, I believe, I believe due to a drug problem. But Jerry Bruckheimer is still, you know, still making movies. He's making television shows like crazy because he's behind a lot of the CSI, like a lot of those cop procedurals and stuff like that, he, his production company. Which, which is like the ultimate formula. Like yeah. that is ultimate, just give people... The the hot you know the uh, the the, yeah. the the fast food that they want yeah. via television you know but like but like you're saying like so you're talking about how Coppola is just basically just screwing all these money people over and over here is Bruckheimer who makes Beverly Hills Cop and he makes Top Gun and he made, like you know the 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 money just piles up because he just becomes very reliable and he replaces that and because he's kind of the company man 
and I don't want to shit all over Jerry Bruckheimer because I do like some of the films that he's produced, but he's essentially the company guy, right? Right. And and because he's the company guy and he's reliable, yeah, it leads to this 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 formula that works for for a number of people. And uh, and you're right, the suits get a hold of it, and that you know right. that happened. You know, and there was a there was a resurgence of independent films and auteurs and things like that in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, even then, look at the piece of shit who was funding that. <laughs> in some ways, mm-hmm. you know, I don't. Well, any, well staying on this topic, have you ever seen? Uh, well, I mean, well, you said something that made me think of this. Have you ever seen? Or oh, have you seen very many Stanley Kubrick movies? Um, I have. Yeah, actually, I have. I have. Um. I have a box set of DVDs that run from um, Lolita all the way to Eyes Wide Shut. So I have seen Paths of Glory, which is a phenomenal movie. It's one of my favorites. My favorite of it, actually. Paths of Glory, Doctor Strange, Love 2001, A Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket, The Shining, and I. So I've seen seven of them. Does it come with that documentary, the Stanley Kubrick Life in Pictures documentary? Yeah, narrated by Tom Cruise. Oh, so you've seen it? I have seen... I think I watched it like when I first got the DVDs set, and that's many years ago. <laughs> okay, because the re- the, re- the reason I'm bringing it up is one mm-hmm. of my favorite documentaries about um, filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really entertaining. It goes through his whole career. It's very long. It really gets into detail. But there's something in that where they talk about, and they they get um, they even have some Warner Brothers executives in that documentary because okay. uh, Kubrick did pretty much all of his films from Lolita, from Lolita on. Uh, for Warner Brothers, yeah. and he they talk about this one Warner exec says first of all, virtually all of Stanley Kubrick's movies made money, uh-huh. and they said they said part of that was because he was very economical about how he spent his money, and he said if you ever got to go to a Stanley Kubrick set, which was not allowed very much, but if you did, he said there were not a hundred people milling around, there were like ten guys shooting the movie and he also was involved in the marketing he knew how to market his movies and they talked mm-hmm. about how he had a very specific marketing plan for a clockwork orange and the clockwork orange i mean really one of the most you can imagine one of the most like uh, troubling yeah. uh un- audience friendly <laughs> movies ever made and it was their at the time it was warner brothers second most profitable film in their history because they followed Stanley Kubrick's like instructions on how to market this film. So, and would anybody on planet Earth, including Martin Scorsese and Francis Coppola, accuse Stanley Kubrick of being like a hack? No. You know, of not being an artist. And it's like there's this weird notion that it's like if you're an artist, you have absolutely no um, obligation to spend the money that you've been given to make your art wisely. And look, if you're spending your own money, that's great. You know, George Lucas wants to make – well, he's never going to make those movies he keeps promising he's going to make. But I mean if George Lucas wants to take his Star Wars money and make these weird little black and white things that nobody – in foreign languages that nobody wants to see, that's his business because that's his money. But I mean the minute you take someone else's money, I think you do have some level of an obligation to kind of like not blow through it. Like you're, uh, you, you, you know, like you're addicted to Coke and it's 1985 and you're just like, ah, give me everything I want. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. And so that kind of drove me nuts, too, is like these movies. Yeah, these it's incredibly expensive to make a movie. Hundreds of millions at this point because, you know, the effects and everything else. So it's like 
that bothered me that it was like, oh, Martin Scorsese is unimpeachable. No, he's not. He's yeah. a guy. He's a guy like anybody else. And sometimes he says dumb things. And I and again, I wish he had been given the chance to clarify. But just like as the argument went on, I wanted to just be like, everybody stop talking about this because you're all screaming at each other. Nobody's making any damn sense. Well, not only that, and this is something else that kind of it's a little tangential to it. But there was something I was complaining about a few years ago where um, – uh, one of my complaints one year was that I was wondering, like, when are these movies too big to fail? Because mm. they are so expensive. And, you know, there was a – I know this worked in publishing for a while, and I know it's worked in, in, in other forms of entertainment from time to time. But, like, one of the things about publishing, at least back – and this goes – my experience in the public industry was, like, 20 years ago. So I think the models may have changed. But back then, the, the publishing house that I was interning for at the time was Avon Books, and they were bought out by HarperCollins at one point. But they they were known for historical romances, and yet they were publishing literature and other things of that nature. But historical romance, and um, and maybe about a decade prior, like horror, B-level horror, helped fuel a lot of that industry because mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. didn't pay out a ton of money in advances because a lot of these writers were churning out like, you know – Book after book after book after book, right? But the books, like it, it was basically, yeah, they were they were um, they were lean in terms of budget, but they sold well enough. And it was the idea that this is the money maker that helps, you know, some MFA out of Iowa publish their first novel that might get on the shortlist for the National Book Award, but yet ultimately might hit the bestseller list. You know, like you know those risky things. And the idea that, you know, that you could have a big movie help your studio fund the smaller movies was, you know, is not unheard of. But I but I think his point is that that's not necessarily happening these days. Mm-hmm. And which is why you see a lot of people turn to, say, Amazon, Netflix and other companies who are who are not only at one point they were hungry for these things. Now they're not necessarily hungry for them, but they will take full advantage of it because they're the ones who are starting to get on the award shortlists too. Right, so there's right. the prestige that goes with that. Um, and also I think that his point is also important too, because Ryan Coogler and Patty Jenkins aside, most of the, the directors of these films are white men. And, you know, I don't know if, if Scorsese is thinking about diversity when he says it, but like if you think of a Ava DuVernay, and I'm probably butchering her name, and or like some other people of, of color and LGBTQ uh, filmmakers and women who like are out there and itching for the chance to make more movies that are visible on a wider release, and they're getting squeezed out by maybe not the umpteenth Marvel movie, but the umpteenth blockbuster big action film, something that, you know, is... is tested and focus market and everything men in black internet yeah things like that that's what i you know he might not be speaking to that but that's also a an effect of this that these other voices of people are getting shut out and they were really they've been fighting very very hard to get in you know you talk about visionary the word visionary but like you have you do have that applied to people who are you know people of, of that nature who might be you know um you know, I, I don't know. I don't. I guess time will tell whether or not Jordan Peele is a visionary in terms of his directing and horror. But I know that Get Out was. He's two for two. Yeah, so. yeah. And I've heard, he's on I his have, way. I haven't seen Us, but I've heard you know Get Out. You know, but Get Out got a lot of you know, and and it's just like Get Out was a movie that like I don't think people thought it was going to be as huge as it ended up being. Oh no way! No, and not at all. Somebody took a risk on that. 
Yeah, I just it was it was just so frustrating because I just I saw both sides of it. And and it was like, again, it was like I I see both sides Mm. and I agree with both sides, but both sides are also wrong. And it just the the debate was just so kind of dumb. And again, again, I think like we're going back and kind of winding back. I just think it was led by a desire to get a really hot, juicy article, which is, of course, understandable because that's their job is to get that. But I really feel like. Scorsese really somebody could have taken him aside and just said, hey, wait a minute. Hold on. Let let me just let me just clarify what it is you're saying, because obviously the movie that Marvel movies and all these movies are cinema. They are. It's all cinema from Charlie's Angels to Taxi Driver to, you know, uh, the the great train robbery to, Mm. you know, and it's Pat the movie. It's, it's 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 all cinema and you know most of it like that theodore sturgeon quote 90 percent of everything is crap yeah that's the way it's going to be and so you know yeah the, these movies are not meant for martin scorsese of course they're not and that's fine uh, you know not every not everything can be two and a half hours movies about a guy going on a religious quest in a foreign country in like 1890 you know what i mean people <laughs> don't want that sometimes they want something else so it was just like such a dumb debate and it yeah. just metastasized and it just made me so sad so that was it, it's funny you and i both had that yeah. same thing i was like yeah it was such a huge topic and i was like that was literally the first thing i thought of when you asked me to do the show. yeah well the other thing is it's just, he briefly reminded me of and and i know he wasn't being like this he reminded me of some of the people i used to run into in college of the capital f film set so like i just had i had a memory of sitting around with uh, somebody i just made friends with and this is very early on in college and you know i spent high school on a steady diet of like john hughes and john cusack movies and <laughs> stupid comedies i used to rent every once in a while i saw fast times or Jamon high more times than i could count but also like also grew up watching schwarzenegger movies you know so you know i've and i'd seen my fair share of you know um once i once i discovered uh I do remember watching some documentary on 70s movies, and I did go out and rent a couple. So I, at that point, I had seen like The French Connection and The Exorcist and a few other of the you know the big ones. But they started; they were talking about movies, and they were all really, really, really into David Lynch. Oh, I have nothing against God. David Lynch. I've never really seen a lot of his films. But at the same time, it was that really pretentious 18, 19-year-old David Lynch fan who probably would be in a comic store with you at the time. This is the mid-90s and looking down his nose at you picking out the latest issue of, say, Detective or Superman because they're holding Sandman. <laughs> mm. <laughs> nothing against Neil Gaiman. But that, that sort of pretentious pretentious like oh i oh i dealt with that big time yep snob and so i felt that like he was so the quick reaction i had to that when he was i was like you're when i was saying you're being a little pretentious was of having to deal with this, this fucking snobs for so long where it was just like can i just watch back to the future again. <laughs> you know i i really have the belief that unless you like so we're now we're getting a little off topic but yeah, to yeah. me it's like if you yeah, unless uh, uh, right of course unless you enjoy unless you enjoy something that is really hateful like you know what i really enjoy anti-semitic jokes like okay now that's a problem but to me it's like unless, i stand if, birth of a nation <laughs> yeah right yeah if if you uh, if if what you love isn't actively harmful towards I, I, some other group of people. Yeah. It's all good. 
it's all good. Yeah. Whether it's people baking things, which I enjoy, or it's home improvement or whatever. Although you could argue that harms people. But you know what I mean? Like for the most part, unless it's like actively harming people, it's all good. And I just don't get why we have this need as humans to just be constantly subdividing one another into these things. And it's just – it's just baffling to me, and I never, I will never, for the life of me, understand. Because again, Tom, you and I are around the same age. Yeah. You and I, you and I, you and I came of age around the same time. We lived with the idea, the dream, the impossible dream, Tom, that our stuff one day would be accepted in normal society. And now we have taken over normal society, and yet there's a big chunk of us that are just so angry about everything. Yeah, like, and it, it's just baffling to me. I, I, you, I watch a superhero show in my living room. <laughs> Four of them. I'm watching a series that got me into comics because it was one of the first. I was I bought it in back issues because it was 1990. But Crisis on Infinite Earths was like was the thing that got me like, this is this huge world and all these things happen and I want more of this story. And I'm finally watching this happen. Whereas if this was 1990, 1991, I would be watching this not with my wife and kid. I think Amanda watches it reluctantly, but you know, but my kids like all into it and my friends are all into it. 20, 25 years ago, I'm watching Highlander, but I'm watching it completely by myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? totally. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so this my second limit kind. My second one kind of goes along with this. Um, it's it's kind of we've we've already touched upon it a little bit, and it's more of a lament than a grievance. But um, I have to say that uh, it was actually I, I had a hard time coming up with a second one. Like the Scorsese thing was just an easy target, to be completely honest. Oh, with it was you. so huge! It was yeah. so huge. Yeah. And and for the record, this is coming out on Monday, the twenty third, because that is the official day of Festivus. So at this point, Rob and I are recording this on um, Wednesday, the eighteenth. Neither of us has seen the Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> and, no, so, not yet. And I have completely logged off so neither of us has anything to say about star wars but i was i was having a hard time coming up with this and i realized that every time i started to write one down i'm like i think i said that last year i think i said that the year before and a part of it is my this is my problem i need to let things go you know <laughs> but i'm but i'm 42 years old and these damn kids need to get off my fucking lawn um <laughs> But part of it is that the issues that have really bothered me, and they're still bothering me because they haven't gone away. Like, I look around, I'm like, nothing is changing. Or if it's changing, it's changing at such a glacial pace. And I feel like we don't have enough time for it to do that. You know, the, the people's behavior isn't changing. You know, the same trolls are still trolling about the same crap. And I know it's best to ignore them, but the problem is, and this is something I notice like when I do venture into a common thread every once in a while, or I do see somebody's Twitter thread, or Ethan Van Skyver opens his mouth again, they're <laughs> everywhere. They are ubiquitous, and, they and then are it's an inexhaustible supply, are, it seems. And they are prolific. They will take over a message board. They will take over a Facebook chat. They will take over a Facebook group. Like, I've muted certain Facebook groups from pop culture because the same person posts shit. And half the time, I'm like, I don't want to read what you have to say. Not because, like, you know, I don't value their First Amendment rights or something, and me telling them to shut up and go away is, like, prohibiting their freedom of speech. It really doesn't. Uh, 
really need to shut the fuck up and go away. None of these people understand anything about how rights work. Yeah, but it's just like, you know, and and, and a lot of it, it's like, you know, it's it's one thing to have this disagreement. We were just talking about the Scorsese thing and and the whole joke, running joke about release the Snyder Cut because like, you know, and and the fight's over whether or not The Last Jedi is a good movie and and what DC Marvel, like, you know, sometimes these are healthy, fun conversations because we get to have, if, if we're all in a friendly room, we get to have that fun, friendly nerd fight there are points where it does get a little too heated and personal and people get like really pissy about it. But I'm talking about the people like, you know, the reason they're there is to be misogynistic. Racist. Yeah. They're there to throw bombs. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, or this rise I've seen in stuff that is depicting the, of, of memes and comments that is attacking people with special needs. I'm like, Ugh. did we, st- when, when did the word retarded come back in vogue? I'm like, you know, just things like that. Well, when, like, we, when we, the last president. I know. And I'm, but I'm too, the thing is like, I'm hitting my Murtaugh moment. I'm starting to get too old for this shit and I'm starting to get tired. I mean, I want to talk about Star Wars and I'm, and I have to hear this thing and I'm just like, and I am a white hetero cisgendered man. It's not affecting me on the level that it is other people i am pretty sure if i looked up the name anita sarkeesian i would see the same stupid crap people were throwing at her five six years now it's been since gamergate came after her because she dared point out sexism and tropes in video games a series that I had started watching and then stopped watching because it just kind of fell off because I got busy or whatever and it never came back to. Also, I'm not a big gamer, but, you know, and there were things that I disagreed with her in the Feminist Frequency videos when I did watch them, but there was a lot that I really agreed with. And I was like, this is a really well put together piece. It was well produced. It was, you, you could tell, like, it was well researched. It was well written. It was like, you know, the effort and the quality was there. And you're at every li- you're at every liberty to disagree with it, but these people just came at her because you know she's a woman and they're boys who apparently mm-hmm. didn't, you know and but the th- and my frustration is that was years ago and we're still here we're they're yeah. still doing it so that's my thing it's like it's getting very tiring just to see the same shit coming after the same people and the only reason that they're still there is people just do walk away from the arguments. And those people believe they've won the argument because they got the last word. And that's yeah, totally yeah. fucking stupid. So, yeah, so like I said, it was more of a lament. I don't know how much discussion is because I think you just agree with me. It's like, yeah, pretty much. I would say go rent taxi driver. Yeah. I'll say <laughs> yeah, it's just like we're network at this point. Like, oh, man, there's a good movie. Oh, right. I love that movie. Okay. Yeah, Sidney Lumet, another good guy. There you go. Another good one. Yeah, so, so get off the get get off the twitter for a little while people just 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 do that you know you, good bad ugly just walk away go rent the good bad and the ugly um take a film class just because it's i think it's just if you have an elect if you're if you're in a in a in academic setting and you have an elective to burn find an intro to film class <laughs> I would love to take one of those. I, I will never go back to school because I hated school and I will never go back to it at this age. But if I had oodles of free time, I would love to take that. That would just be I, fun to take a tour, have somebody give me a tour of what they consider important film. And even if it's stuff I've already seen, I would find that interesting. Yeah, I took one in college. Uh, it was senior year. I had the elective. I was intro to film. It was, you know, I also took one on, on adaptation, which was fiction and film, but it was an upper level English course. So that's where I actually got to write the 
the paper about Apocalypse Now and Heart of Darkness. Um, but I remember some of the films that we watched in the Intro to Film course. So we watched Citizen Kane. We started with Citizen Kane, of course. Um, it was the first time I'd ever seen it. And I will never forget watching it in my dorm room and my roommate working, walking in going, oh, that's Mr. Burns. <laughs> and me going, yeah. <laughs> and honestly, that is a movie that, and I, and I, it's been years since I've taught this novel, but it, in my mind, like I could pair it with the great Gatsby, you know, like it's just one of those films. And, and he, we watched it first because it's just that it's a clinic on filmmaking. And then we watched, I, I remember watching the day the earth stood still, uh, 2001. Oh man. Um, wall street network, Nashville. Oh, some of these oh movies man. I it was, it was great. Uh, um, and then we got into um, we got into some of the indie stuff from the East. We watched the Hal Hartley film, and I don't remember which one. We watched Jim Jarmusch's uh, Stranger Stranger Than Paradise. Yeah, Stranger Than Paradise. Yeah. Stranger Than Paradise is the Terry Moore book. Glengarry Glen Ross, and um, there might have been one or two others that that we watched and stuff. And we had to write a couple of papers, but it was this whole thing about. And we had a textbook that you know you had to buy, and it was one of those fascinating textbooks to flip through because you learned about all the different film terms. You know, what's a one shot, a two shot. You know, like you know how. How you how a film is shot and chiaroscuro yeah <laughs> what different angles mean and stuff and then like illusions like I had no idea what the Odessa step, step sequence was oh I'd from the seen, Untouchables yeah I'd seen yeah, the Untouchables yeah. but then I saw the references made in other films and it was, so it was just like so if you ever even if you can find like an online class or something or or, or something even it, via YouTube looking at you know film school rejects and some of those other communities that really are more academic about film. Just to, just to end us on a little bit of a positive note, I really recommend two, it because it's two, just two, fun, so. two very brief asides before we yeah. move on to this comic book that we're going to rip apart. Yeah. Uh, two very brief asides. First of all, isn't it a, isn't it a testament to that Simpsons episode that it was such a sharp parody of mm-hmm. Citizen Kane that your roommate could see – could could see that Simpsons mm-hmm. episode and be able to immediately draw the comparison to Citizen Kane when he saw it. Yeah. And you only you only do you can only really parody something unless you really love it. Yeah. You really can't parody something that you hate because you you really don't live inside of it. So that's that's a testament to how good that episode of The Simpsons were and how much the writers crafted and the and the animators of course yeah. crafted a spot on parody. That you could recognize it as, as you could recognize the source material from having only seen the Simpsons episode. That's an amazing compliment to the Simpsons that they did such a great job parodying that movie. That's one. Secondly, in terms of film class, I will say there is a documentary called A Personal Journey, which is about almost four hours long. And it's one person who takes you through a history of American films and they sort of instruct you as to what they found influential, what they thought was interesting. Huh. And they kind of they kind of lean on obscure stuff as opposed to talking about Citizen Kane or whatever. But it's fascinating. I watch it every year. It's unbelievable. It's on DVD and it just happens to be hosted by Martin Scorsese. Oh, well, that's that brings us right that that brings us right back around, right back. Podcasting is a flat circle. Yes, yes. Martin Scorsese, who, by the way, was involved in two of the greatest music documentaries of all time because he was a crew member on Woodstock. That's right. That's right. And he he directed one of the other movies I've seen of his, The Last Waltz. Last Waltz, which I and- loved. And he directed two excellent Bob Dylan documentaries, yes. hashtag Bob Dylan. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So we are going to go to the Feeds of Strength in a moment, but I'm going to take a quick break and run a trailer. And when I get back, Feats of Strength. Stick around. 
dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Fan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHcast analyzes episode by episode the greatest television series of all time, MASH. Find MASHcast on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Jocularity! Jocularity! So now we get to the feats of strength, and uh, whereas in the Seinfeld episode it was a wrestling match between Jerry Stiller and Jason Alexander, so picture that. It's it's if you've never seen the episode The Strike, audience, uh, it's it's half of a good episode because some of the Kramer stuff is kind of silly. It's later season Seinfeld, but the the George Costanza Festivus stuff is is gold, pure gold. Um, but we're getting the feast of strength here. We will discuss one comic from the speculation years of the 1990s. So far, I have looked at with Mike Bailey the entire first Brigade miniseries from Image. Uh, with Alan, we did two issues of the Ferret from Malibu, and last year Shag and I looked at the uh, an issue of Defiant Comics War Dancer. Uh, this time around, we are going with Armor. Volume 2, Issue 4, from Continuity Comics. Now, before I get into my synopsis of the book, I want to give a little background on the company, because it actually has a little bit of notoriety as far as comics history is concerned, because its publisher was Neil Adams. He, of course, is a legendary artist, and in 1984, he ventured into publishing. 
Continuity would publish its first title in 1987 with a revival of the Pacific Comics title Ms. Mystic. And there are a number of independent comics companies in the late 80s that seem to pick up old Pacific Comics titles. I know First Comics republished a number of those as well, because I have some of them. Anyway, uh, Continuity published several titles over the years, including the graphic novel Bucky O'Hare by Larry Hama and Michael Golden, and an adaptation of Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. It also helped foster the early careers of Dan Barry, Vicente Alcazar, Mike Deodato Jr., Mark Teixeira, Dave Hoover, Richard Bennett, Tom Grinberg, Bart Sears, Esteban Moroto, and Michael Netzer. Some of these guys are still working today. Others had quite a bit of work for other companies in the early 90s. Uh, Bart Sears, of course, uh, known for his work for DC, Marvel, Valiant especially. Uh, Mike Diodato Jr. Um, is also a recognizable name both from the 90s. He had that run on Wonder Woman where there was just a lot of... Um, Tits out and asses up, I guess is probably the way to put it. <laughs> He's, he, he came of, he had a long run with Marvel and I, from what I understand, kind of toned some of that down and actually was, uh, pretty well known for his, pretty so well known that DC actually co- published a Wonder Woman collection, Wonder Woman by Mike Deodato Jr. <laughs> Wow. Um, uh, and that was the Bill Messner Loeb's written run that so was sandwiched between um, the the end of the Paris stuff and the beginning of the Burn stuff. Anyway, there are two of the more recognized, there are two of the more recognizable names here. Mark Teixeira is a name that at least I knew pretty well because he was the regular Wolverine artist for a time. Um, I have some of his other stuff. He was doing stuff like Hex back in the mid 80s. And, um, the, the first place I ever spotted uh, Mark Deshera, believe it or not, he was doing Ghost Rider for Marvel. And if you own the Les Daniels Marvel 50 Years of Comics book, he when they take you through the how, how a Marvel comic is produced, like in the back, he's the penciler that they have photos of and showing him penciling the splash page of a Ghost Rider comic. So that's where I recognized him. Anyway, Tom Grinberg and Mike Netzer did a number of DC books back in the early 90s, and during the 90s boom, continuity went all in on gimmicks. This included chromium covers, glow-in-the-dark covers, trading card inserts, and even crossover events, one of which this issue uh, was part of. I should also note that they, they invested and tried out something called Tyvek covers. They were supposedly indestructible covers. Tyvek, <laughs> by the way, is what they make like siding for houses out of like you know like no way that can go wrong yeah so anyway continuity went under in 1994 um among financial and legal troubles mostly brought on because of the speculation bust now i got this comic for free (laughs) somebody gave this to me uh as part of a massive collection of comics they gave to me a, a number of years ago i finally worked my way through most of it and kept what i needed and most of the indie comics are have either been recycled or sold off or donated. But I don't know if the uh, book itself, the issue, actually has a title, because I went to look for an actual title of the story, and I don't think it has one. But uh, it is dated October of 1993. The creative team is as follows. Peter Stone's story, Sal Valudo, pencils, Del Barris inks, Tom Roberts colors, Gail Beckett letters. The cover was by Michael Golden and somebody named Corey. I don't know if it was Haim or Feldman or Hart. I, or what, but... I believe that is his son. Oh, okay. All right. Sorry. <laughs> 
Uh, I should note that we start before that, of course, Michael Golden is well known, especially to me. I covered the NOM. Um, Sal Valudo might sound familiar because he had long runs as the penciler on Mark Spector Moon Knight in the late 80s and then on Justice League Task Force in the early 1990s. So people who were writing comics in the late 80s and 90s came across his artwork quite a bit. So let's get into the story. Uh, this is part of the Mag- Rise of Magic crossover which was the crossover that immediately followed the previous crossover, which was called Death Watch 2000. And honestly, if there's any more of a 90s-sounding name for an event, it's Death Watch 2000. You have death in the title, and there's a reference to the year 2000. I love the fact that there's already this many crossovers in a series that's on issue four. It gets canceled like two months later. This is like right right. at the end of the run. All right. Continuity. Slow your roll. All right. (laughs) Okay. So we begin on the dock uh, where Journey filmed the video for Worlds Apart Separate Ways. (laughs) And Arthur Fonzarelli, a.k.a. the Fonz, is kicking the crap out of some thug. All right, it's not the Fonz, not Henry Winkler, but we are on a dock. This guy is in jeans. He's wearing a leather jacket, and his name is Jack Keaton. And somebody watched Batman prior to writing this, and he is holding some sort of hook blade weapon while kicking a guy and screaming, Eat my boot, jerkweed. Um, and, and I was writing the synopsis, and my son walked into the the office, and I, was, I had the comic open to that page, and he was asking me a question. He walked away. He's like, that's like the best insult ever. Eat my boot, jerkweed. That's fantastic. That's such a Billy Jack thing. I, I, I feel like I should use that in my daily life. So behind Jack are four people. There's a woman dressed in what looks like a belly dancing costume, kind of. Um, and there are three punks who are right out of a Chris Claremont 80s X-Men comic. You know, those sort of generic punks that were always in X-Men comics at the time. According to the caption boxes, Jack is 17, and even though he saved the world during Death Watch 2000, he still has to go to high school and do homework. Aw, shucks. The fight continues, and the girl... If he went to Riverdale, he would never have to do it because he'd been embroiled in all this crap. Anyway, the fight continues. The girl thinks about how she has to get away from all of them because this random guy who has a weird-looking hook weapon and he has a glowing right eye that in his secret identity he puts a patch over it but anyway this guy's hacking away at these punks screaming you must be punished while ripping out their eyes the punks are all taken out the girl is gone jack thinks to himself that the rage was in control what i don't know what that means and i'm completely coming out coming at this with no context i've never read an issue of this series this is the only continuity comic i think i've read so we got to figure it out as we go. But to him, continuity's motto: every every issue is somebody's first. Yes. Uh, so it's as if his alter ego armor is replacing Jack Keaton. So Jack Keaton is armor, and that's the title of the book. Okay. So just then, two sea huge sea monsters with blue green skin men, and they're wielding like power tridents or whatever, come out of the harbor, and they want to know where the girl went off to. And I have to say this because you know you read the book. Sorry. I picked you to be on this episode before I read the. Con- comic so the storyline really conveniently dovetails with your interest (laughs) it's i did not do this on purpose it's it's i should have i shouldn't even admit it it would make it's make me sound like you know it would it would have seemed like i was a really good podcaster (laughs) but so we've got mermen who we will find out later are from atlantis uh because i know i know you are i know you have a uh 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 what's what's his name um Barnacle Boy and uh, 
what's the other guy from SpongeBob? Uh, Mermaid Man. Mermaid, Mermaid Man. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, um, no, you can just you know robs robs the Aquaman guy. But yeah, totally, totally inadvertent. Anyway, so these two guys come up and they want to know where the girl is. So they have nothing to do with armor or jacket, but they see that Jack is someone who is important. They call him a powerful warrior who saved the one from the primitives, whatever the hell that means. So they go after him. He puts on his armor. They fight. Jack stabs one of the beasts with a trident. And there's some weird looking guy looming in the shadows and watching this, which I am sure will be important later. But armor continues to fight, then eventually gets the upper hand by sneaking away and then coming back to surprise them. He spots the mystery guy, but just as he tells him to get out of there lest he get killed, armor is thrown over the dock into the harbor. When he gets back up, the mysterious guy is fighting the mer, the mer creatures with a sword, and they refer to him as, as the shaman. The mer people retreat, and armor asks the shaman who he is. The shaman tells him to go home and then calls him child. This pisses armor off, and when armor touches him, the shaman zaps him with his power staff thingy that he's holding. This gets armor even more enraged, and he whips his dick out to show him who's boss. No, he actually really just whips out a samurai sword, but Freud would have a field day with the pose we've got because he's holding it right between his legs and he's gritting his teeth with his eyes closed. Like he's Judge Reinhold in that scene in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, you know, the scene we all paused. Oh, yeah. So anyway, the cops show off, Shaman leaves, armor zips up, and he turns back to Jack, into Jack and gets off. I mean, he leaves the scene. But then the girl shows up and says her name is Monica. He says that she can calm down because the demons are gone. But then he gets zapped by one of them. He receives the reflection of something called rage. I guess that's what it's called. And I don't know if it's demonic possession or what, but he just sees it and yells, rage! And then he gets knocked around by one of those mermen. The merman grabs Monica, takes her underwater, saying that they have defied their queen. She pleads for his help and he jumps in the water but falls unconscious. He doesn't drown, though, because we just cut to the upstate home of Joe Majorac, a.k.a. Megalith. I have no idea. And he talks to Jacques Keaton, who is his French counterpart. They're Canadians, so they have to all have French counterparts. I don't know. Um, no, Jacques all, where have you been? Why didn't you call? Jacques all, okay, mom. But I guess Jacques has to be mom because their mom and dad are dead. So I have to say this. Who the hell names their kids Jacques and Jack? They're brothers, and their names are Jacques and Jack. So, seriously. Anyway, Jacques is wondering why Jack is acting like such a kid. Jack says that he felt saving Monica's life was more important than a cooking class, and the argument gets interrupted by a news report that Atlantis has been found, and we have live footage of the Atlantic Lanian queen and her daughter, who also happens to be Monica. Jack saw Monica is there, and I have to save her. He gets into a flying car. Why don't we have those yet? Well, Jacques wants him to come back. Meanwhile, Monica's parents are in Brooklyn, and Mom is upset that his daughter is missing. Dad, who was reading the paper, hears the doorbell. He screams about reporters them leaving them alone, but the reporters aren't at the door. Instead, it's the FBI. Monica's mom wants to know if there's any more information about her and says that he doesn't have any. The FBI agent whose name he says is Stromberg, wants to see a recent picture of Monica. They give her a framed photo, which she has signed, and I have to wonder who signed... It's, she signed the photo. Who signs photos anymore if they're not charging for an autograph? I mean, what did the... I mean, Neil Adams' signatures up to, like, 40 bucks. I mean, like, you know, did she charge them? 
Anyway, Stromberg leers at the picture like a creep, and then he says some spell about returning the parents to their places prior to his arrival, and it's as if he was never there, because he's actually the shaman guy from earlier in the issue. We then cut to Madrid, where reporters are gathering to cover the Atlanta story, because that's where the Atlanteans are being housed, like in this hotel, which is weird, because Madrid is nowhere near water. It's like smack in the middle of Spain. So if this was in the if 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 Atlantis was in the Atlantic like and you need a major city like Lisbon might be more appropriate if it's in the Mediterranean because they have place like possibly it being near Greece or whatever um, it would be maybe I don't know if you're staying in Spain Barcelona Valencia whatever I'm arguing over the geographic location of a setting in this shitty comic. A helicopter lands, and then we have two pages. We have two letters pages that are jammed in the middle of the issue, <laughs> and these should have been a double-page spread, but they're not. And this angers me so much. I was a high school publications advisor for ten years, and this shit would have never happened under my watch. Plus, what's with all the white space between the columns, and who set the indentation on the paragraphs of the letters to like half an inch? It's, I mean, I, I don't really care what Michael Brewster of Anaheim has to say, but this is really, really sloppy, and I expect it better. <laughs> Back to the story. There's a press conference. Jack has zoomed from New York to Madrid in time to be there, and he spots the shaman. He yells, hey, buddy, shaman, like, okay, and tries to get him to him, but he can't. This is a crowd. Then we cut to later where two guards spot the flying car, and they treat it as hostile, but it's on remote because that's Armor's distraction, so Armor can sneak into the hotel. Shaman reports in and follows him as he finds the hotel room where Monica is being kept. He breaks in. Monica's all, Jack, I knew you'd come to save me, and says that the queen who's evil, who is, like, standing right there is an evil witch. The queen who is in a green robe with some, like, evil Lynn headdress says that Monica is right. She's the greatest sorceress of Atlantis, and he, he'd better watch out because she's going to flambe him with the power of vengeful gods or whatever. Armor's like, all right, let's rock, lady. And then when Sha- it's then when Shaman bursts in doing his best warlord cosplay, but he's got this mullet that is so majestic that it can be tied into a ponytail. I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing. And he says, I, you know, because... Like, he's gotten off the Pequod a few minutes ago. So Ishmael here yells, Aye, there will be a funeral this day. Prepare to learn the cold lesson of steel. Somewhere Krom is pleased. The witch yells, Tis he, the shaman. And Armor's all, I'm not even supposed to be here today. And we finish with the shaman yelling, Aye, witch queen of Atlantis, shaman, the master of light. And by my blade, all must face Justice! Justice! And all of a sudden, it's Moby Dick meets the Rime of the Ancient Mariner meets Warlord meets Conan meets, like, fucking Youngblood or whatever. And that is issue number four of Armor. So oh. <laughs> I'm exhausted just just <laughs> listening to you recite that. Recite. Oh. <laughs> I'm amazed that I, I did it mostly in one take. But, oh, God, this is like... No wonder, no wonder this company went under. You know, apologies to the people who were creators and actually were, you know, some of them. Because I've seen other independent comics of this era. And, you know, if I can say something positive about this, Salvaluto is doing enough of a sort of pastiche on like Neil Adams that it's 
a little more palatable than somebody who is clearly under the influence of Rob Liefeld. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Neil Adams is clearly the house style. So, so like <laughs> the splash page, it's like page three or four where the two monsters are coming out of the dock with the guys riding them. I actually like that page. It's, you know, those monsters look ferocious. These mermen look like, you know, they're very, very generic looking, you know, they could be in a Namor comic or, you know, whatever. But at least it's like, you know, big threat, little guy. The camera angle is really good. You know, I, I will give him credit. The art here is not absolutely terrible. I've seen much worse. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't. You did not tell me what comic you were sending me before I agreed to do this. No, I didn't. So when so when I opened it up and I saw the cover by Michael Golden, mm -hmm. my first thought was Thomas Evelyn Panneries. <laughs> I know that's not your middle name, but I don't care. Thomas Evelyn Panneries. How dare you send me a comic book with any involvement by Michael Golden that I am supposed to just rip apart because. Anything Michael Golden touches, I you know, there's the pun is right there in his name. Yeah. Anything that Michael Golden touches is already better than a lot of comic books. This is and true. even though he just did the cover, that's how talented Michael Golden is. So just by the fact that I literally opened the PDF and I saw the cover and I went, shit, is this Michael Golden? How the hell am I supposed to say something bad about a comic book with a cover by Michael Golden? Now, okay, that said, he was just hired to do the cover mm -hmm. and he's not responsible for the insides. The best way I can describe this comic book uh, as in kind of metaphorical terms, because I'm not going to get into all the story. That story was ridiculous and I don't need to go into the details. But this, this comic book is sort of the equivalent of when you're driving to work and you put on your headphones, right, on, on your, your your iPhone or your Zoom, your Zoom or whatever it is you got, and you put it in and you put music on and you realize that as you're driving to work, you have set the volume a little too loud. And you are like, this is really annoying. It's now beating into my ears. I have got to turn this down. But because of the way the phone is situated, you can't quite get to it without running the risk of hitting someone in front of you mm. because of traffic. And it's louder and louder and louder <laughs> and louder. And you want to go insane. That's what this comic book is. It is 20-some-odd pages of people just screaming at each other. Yes. Full on, everything is overdrawn. Everything is overfilled. I mean, you mentioned they said, "Eat my boot, jerk weed," yes. and it's got that. I mean, and you've got these um, these uh, these uh, captions that are just way overwritten. By the way, the the girl in the opening page, the reason she looks like a belly dancer is because I guess the idea was that she was about to be raped, and yes. so they blouse because you see her on the second page and her shirt's back on. Oh, okay, so that's what it is. Is that she's that's like her and her bra. Oh, okay. It's like page after page of you must be punished. My eye. You cut out my eye. And then two pages later, we get the aliens, the, the, the creatures coming out of the sea. Flame in hell. Take him. He must know where she has fled. Or is he hiding her? And you're just like, everybody stop yelling. Everybody just stop yelling. And then the other thing is the house ads. <laughs> Jiminy Christmas I have never seen a collection of house ads more designed to stick their like their again their metaphorical chin out and asking to be punched in it. I mean, you've got this ad for this Rise of Magic crossover, which is again, it's your forces into a new series. Don't be doing crossovers. Yeah, yeah. They're, they've got this tag catchphrase. It'll grab you. Good art and good story in the same comic book. 
which is just asking for trouble. Well, and, it, and it's so it, it's so a dig at both Valiant and Image because this was um, this is this was published in ninety. What did I say? Ninety late ninety three, which is right around the time they were attempting to get all of Death made out in the span of you know a year or whatever how long it took, and Image was the good art company, and I'm using air quotes, and but Valiant was the good story company, but with you know the, the with the Barry Windsor Smith aside, the the art and a lot of the art and a lot of um, Valiant comics of the day was serviceable at best. Sure. You, you had Barry Smith and, and early Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti stuff, you know, was it was dynamic at least. But, you know, it was not, um, you know, it was, you know, it wasn't it wasn't particularly nothing to write home about. And then the image was, you know, the image reputation perceived itself. It's all I really need to, to mention there. I mean, just uh, just immediately like kind of being snide in your ad yeah, of like yeah. good art, good story. In the same comic, can you believe it? And you're like, you know, guys, calm down. And then there's another house ad for the Rise of Magic, and I guess the book is called Cyber. Cyber? I, no, it's Cyber Rad. Oh, is there word? Oh, there is the word rad. Yeah, this so, ad is cy- unreadable. Cyber this ad is completely unreadable. Yeah. So cyber I, is in that '80s calculator font, you know. The, and then yeah. rad, rad is like. Rad. Oh, pretty rad, much rad, rad is what it is. Rad. rad. You know, it's almost like a like a Nintendo game ad from the early 1990s. You know, it like, is. This thing is like this. I mean, it is a handsome looking comic. I have to say, so, as you mentioned, Sal Valuto does a very nice pastiche on on uh, Neil Adams. Adams. But I mean, these and then there's this ad for Megalith and. It, and they're like, there's way too much dialogue, and I never knew at any point what the holy hell was happening at any point. And then there's, then you got the letters, but this thing is just like it's just somebody screaming at you yeah. for for twenty pages, and you're just it, to me it's like headache inducing. Well, it, there's really, there's this ad, there's this Rise of Magic ad for Samari, Mistress of the Martial Arts, and it's like possessed, oh, and God. if. <laughs> If you ever wanted to wanted to wondered what it would be like if Psylocke was played by, I don't know, pick a blonde from a Skinamax movie of the time. <laughs> this is your that ad. crotch shot is unreal. This is like this is I can't it, it, like by the angle that we're getting of Samari from her crotch. I mean, this is this is like Crisis on Infinite Taints or something. I mean, you're just like exactly. everybody just calm down. And then and then even Armor's costume, he has like 40 million little things on it. Yeah. You're like, guys, this is never going to be an action figure with this kind of design. I, I, I this thing is it really it like hurts your eyes to look. I, I know I just said the artwork is really good, mm. but just I can't imagine poor Selvaludo having to draw this thing. You you can tell there are places where he clearly put effort into some of the panels. I think the oh I think the whole thing yeah. smacks of effort. I I would I'm not at all criticizing. It. I just feel bad for the guy yeah, of yeah. having to just make heads or tails of this <laughs> of this random collection of events. It's yeah. just. Oh my god! Because the guy actually drew drew backgrounds, <laughs> like you know, yeah. you, you get comics from this time, and it's like you know, here we're at our headquarters, and our headquarters happens to be like an underground bunker, and all the walls are gray because guess what? The artist doesn't want to draw the backgrounds. I can't. I I mean, look, there's there's group there's a big group shots here. There's a press conference at one point where he draws a bunch of people. All these fight scenes again. I I think it's. 
between the cover and the inside art, I think it is a very nice looking comic, but boy, it is just overstuffed beyond capacity. Well, the shaman busts in with this costume. It's not even a costume. He's wearing like the same sort of, so I guess he's Atlantean or kind of in the same. Because he's, there will be a funeral this day. Uh, yeah. Like apparently in the cold lesson of steel. Yes. <laughs> there she blows. Oh, man. <laughs> and, oh, this thing. But the hair, like I said, it's like, it took me a while. He's like, like a, got a flat top. And then it then it's like long and so long in the back that it's um, that it's got a ponytail. It's like I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, ex NFL player Brian Bosworth, but <laughs> yeah. good God! Speaking of Cold crappy stick. movies, I saw that movie in the theater. Um, good Lord, Tom. <laughs> Lance Hendrickson has the best line in that entire movie because he's the Lance Hendrickson plays the bad guy. And he says, it's times like this when I remember my father's last words to me. Don't, son, that gun is loaded. So, <laughs> Lance Hendrickson is always bringing it. And I, ha- I, I, remember, remember I remember that. And I have to put my car keys in the same place every night so I don't forget where they are. Um, <laughs> oh, and there were like trading cards. Oh uh, yeah, they, they they right they 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 pitch the trading cards here. Oh and man! And the second to last page, which um, maybe the hero points guys need to get on this. There's a continuity comic. Uh, there's a Death Watch 2000 adventure supplement for the heroes and heroines role playing game. Ambitious. <laughs> Ambitious. They might as well have on the letters page now accepting licensing offers for film and television. Yeah, I mean it's just like. Uh, well, it's no wonder yeah. that they went under too, because, like I said, this is late '93. This is around the time the um, this is around the time the the thing, whole thing goes just bursts. Oh man! And um, I think by I early, mean, they did have the Max. There is an ad for the Max, and of course, the Max, you know, that made it out. Yeah. Well, the Max, bit. the Max was Image. No, or is that Dark Horse? I forget, but I mean, there's this one ad here. Oh, that's the game. It's thing. part of the game. Yeah, so that part they of the game. So yeah, because okay. X mutants and protectors are um, Malibu comics. Oh right, right, right. Okay. The only, right. The, oh man. The only oh. reason I know anything about X mutants is because there was like an issue or two in that bin, and it's uh, one of very, very early work by uh, Paul Pelletier. Oh wow! And it was okay. actually. The guy, I mean, the guy has gotten so much better. I mean, in the last twenty, twenty-five years, but even twenty-five years ago, because he would go from there to like Green Lantern, and then you know a lot of DC stuff. He was, he was, Paul Pelletier was excellent back in the nineties. So and he did a good run on Aquaman. Yeah, he did a good job on Aquaman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, oh. so this is just it's it is just. But again, this is why it's a feat of strength. I did not read the um, letters column because <laughs> I was. Just, <laughs> I I will skim letters columns of old comics because either a I'm interested in what people had to say or b I'm trying to figure out if like anybody I know has a letter. Oh, I'm always looking for Russell Burbage's name in letters yeah. pages. Like, <laughs> like for instance, I have an issue of Suicide Squad that is signed by John Ostrander on the cover, and on the inside on the letters page it is signed by uh by your co your your co-host Shag because he has a letter there and I had him sign the letter column. <laughs> Oh, don't don't feed his ego like that. What are you doing, Tom? Like, I I like that if you name uh, the letters page because they don't have a lane, name yet because it's only issue four. Yeah. You win a free copy of Valeria, the glow, glow in the dark, dark cover. cover issue number one. Yeah, it's like you know what you didn't need to tell us it was glow in the dark cover. I think we knew that. Yeah, yeah but nobody in here is really. Uh... 
nobody is really in here uh, is, is anybody because every once in a while like I'll be reading through an old issue of like Amazing Heroes or something and like you know there's like a TM Maple or an Uncle Elvis or a, you know <laughs> Ken like, A Phoenix yeah yeah just some of these <laughs> some of these old school letter or letter hacks like you know who just or or I see the same like names pop up in things and I'm just like good god like you wrote more letters to comics you had more letters to comics published than i did because i used to write a lot of letters to comics <laughs> um the the end of the letter column though he says they say this is just the beginning of the best the future of the continuity oh. comics <laughs> promises more and better stories art and excitement somebody out there is just screaming at their iphone going how dare you say this about this book the very things you've been begging for things you've been uh, we are eager to hear your comments on our collective efforts which is one of the reasons we have initiated this page of readers reactions congratulations you published a letters page in a comic in 1993 there were a lot of those out there, guys. In the very near future, all Continuity Comics will have a letters page where you can read the comments of your fellow fans and contribute the comments on your own. Not for long, your company is going to fold within six months. We look forward to hearing from you. As a special feature, if you want to hear from your fellow comics fans, full street addresses of all published letters will be printed on request. That's not out of the ordinary. There were that happened in all these comics. Wizard used to have that feature of like find a pen pal. Remember that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then there's don't. <laughs> Don't God the indent on this for I know the, the the kerning on this thing is driving uh, insane. Yeah, don't dare miss Megalith number four, five, and six for the world's strongest man's all capitalized most grueling adventures as he is possessed by a monstrous, bloodthirsty werewolf slash demon. Big, big space. The artwork, <laughs> yeah, the artwork of Ernesto Infante is truly stunning, especially as it is inked by the best in the business, Joe Ru- Rubenstein and Bill Sienkiewicz. Okay, that I'm last right sentence that. is true. Those are Joe yeah. Rubenstein and Bill Sienkiewicz are legends, is as yeah, far that, as that artwork is, is concerned. Best in the business is a completely fair yeah. way to describe those yeah. two gentlemen. Well, I think that's the frustration I have with like this and and continuity comics and reading the history of that. Like the names, like I said, they were are really recognized. Like, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of Bart Sears, but I do acknowledge the fact that he was like a like a force in, you know, in the 90s. Oh, absolutely. Wizard cover after wizard cover. He had runs on, you know, that that Turok comic he drew for Valiant was not bad. You know, I mean, the artwork was really good on that. He did Invasion. He did. You know, he had the run on Justice League Europe. So, like, you know, he's he's well known. Mark Teixeira, I really liked his art back in the 90s because it was just so... I mean, the lines were really thick, but he was—it was—he was very, very detailed and very just very manly, very manly, manly, man's man, and men shooting each other and doing shit like that. Well, and he was writing—he was drawing Wolverine at the time was being—I think it was being uh, written by Larry Hama. So it's like you know, oh man, that is—you know—to put hair in your chest. Yeah, I mean, you know, like let's just the only other writer I can think of who would be just more even more manly would be like you know a. Chuck Dixon or something like you know that sort of action. <laughs> so I've always liked to share his art. It's it's, it's really the, good. The only thing more manly than Larry Hammer or Chuck Dixon is just like a slab of granite, <laughs> like just a, a giant stone edifice that's dropped down and somehow writes comic yeah. books. Oh, Bo Smith. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. But yeah. then but then you've got like you know Michael Netzer had been around since the seventies because I have an old Batman family or DC Super Special or something. At the time he was uh, his name he had originally gone by the name Michael. Nasser, and then there was right. changed his name, but it's but it is very Neil Adams influenced. Yep, yep, um, yep, yep. of that style. I think I have something. It's like one of those dollar comics, and he's fighting the the 
Batman's going up against the Cobra cult, and it's just it's just a great. You know, it so, is. That's a great comic. Yeah. And Tom Grinberg. Tom Grinberg. Another guy. Another Neil Adams. Yeah. And he was really good when you saw in certain capacities, especially when he got to ink himself, because he did Bride of the Demon. Uh, I think Mike W. Barr wrote that. It's a Rosh Al Ghul yes. hardcover. I have the hardcover. He did this outstanding. It's one of my favorite of the Armageddon 2001 crossovers. He did Detective Comics, where it's basically like a Raj Ghul story. I think Louise Simonson, of all people, wrote it, um, which I didn't expect her to be writing a Raj Ghul story because I don't as- associate with her with it. But it's this whole future story where, like, you know, Batman's back's been broken and, and Tim Drake becomes Batman and then he gets killed. So Batman, like, kind of puts on this sort of, uh, like, exoskeleton type of thing and he goes in and it's his last fight with with Rachel Ghoul and I don't know how to pronounce the thing anyway but um but it's a really really good thing and Grinberg's art is just outstanding you know um and but the Titans annual he did the same year is just like it's kind of lackluster and I think it was he was it was on Baxter paper and he was not inking himself and it's just like you know there are parts of it that are good the parts that are bad but but yeah he was and so you have these artists Michael Golden of course and um, and uh, who were really really solid, but they're getting to do stories like this. The problem with a lot of these companies, and I can't profess to be an expert on continuity. Mm-hmm. I read a couple of these at the time, yeah. but the, and they ran into the same problem with Atlas Seaboard in the mid seventies, where it's like somebody's trying to take on Marvel and DC, and they especially Marvel since they were the industry leaders yeah. by the mid seventies and never looked back for the most part. Is that these these upstart companies tried to play Marvel's game? on marvel's turf and they can't do that marvel wasn't marvel when it started out i mean they picked up speed really quickly but of course they had two of the greatest comic book artists ever to walk the face of the earth drawing the stories you can't be marvel right out of the gate you can't you'll get you'll get crushed because marvel had years and years to defend dc years and years to develop this style yeah but instead i mean again it's like it's absurd to read to look at this comic book and look at these house ads with these massive crossovers. You know, like guys, I don't even know who these characters are yet. Well, yeah, and, and don't don't give me these multi-part crossovers, especially when the book is two fifty a pop. Like, just tell me a just tell me a story, and if I like it, I'll come back, and maybe I'll keep coming back, and then you can maybe start crossing people over. But not at issue four. We've already got some worlds will live, worlds will die. What? <laughs> what are you talking about here? Image had to Image's credit. They had some crossover and continuity, no pun intended, between their books early on, but it would be like a one-off appearance here and there. Maybe right, one right. character would, but there was uh, there. It took a while for them to get their really first major, major crossover. Death made aside, um, you know, it took a few years, and by then they'd established themselves. People had moved on. People, other people had come in, and image over the last 25 years has rebranded itself in a way that I don't think um, anybody would have expected back in 1993. No, I mean, they're unrecognizable from the company when they started. They still publish Savage Dragon Spawn and on and off will publish like some of Mark Silvestri's stuff, depending on whether or not he's involved with the company. But, you know, so and they still have a couple of those titles, but you're right. they, They just not... You know, they're not what they used to be, but at the same time, it's like, you know, good for them for finding, like, you know, having the people, right people behind the wheel as far as the, the business is concerned to, to know how to weather the storm that came, that they kind of helped, they kind of helped, um, not, they didn't cause, but they, they strengthened, I guess is the best way to put it. 
continuity seems to be taking a page from what Valiant did, because Valiant put out a few titles pretty early on, but then they had Unity. And I never read it, but Unity was this crossover that went through all the titles of the time, and there was just sort of this universe-building thing, and it was all Jim Shooter. And by the time continuity is doing this death watch 2000 good god just like it really sounds like a fake movie title i would have come up with when i was 14 years old and (laughs) and um and you know it'd be awesome yeah death watch 2000 no 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 no. (laughs) next time it'll be 3000 because everybody says 2000 we'll make it 3000 but the unity books were like they were going for like ten, twenty dollars a pop. Like Ray Rye number zero, which was one of his first appearances of this or that. It was like you know they were wall books in the early nineties. So somebody was seeing that and seeing the back issue market and seeing the collectibles aspect of it, and they said we need to do this too. And they just they bought into the whole speculation of it, and they thought this was going to be you know, and we have good art and we have good story and you know whatever they're advertising here. But yeah, it just. It didn't. It was about as successful as the company we looked at last year, which was Defiant. Yeah, and artists are notoriously bad at managing money and doing business. That's why they're artists. You know, I mean, uh, that that that's not a knock at them. I mean, if you if you are a creative person who does have some business acumen, count yourself lucky. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, you know, like they're they're terrible at it, and that's why you have companies and infrastructures around these creative people because they don't want to handle all that nonsense. And it's unfortunate that all these companies tend to go under uh you know the road is littered with comics corpses you know where again whether it's atlantic seaboard or charlton or or you know or good continuity or valiant all these things it's just it's tough to do this it's tough to fight dc and marvel images managed to carve out a space dark horse yeah. of course idw but by but think about it like how idw and image and dark horse are still around are all offering something that dc and marvel don't yeah. They're really not doing, you know, these massive crossovers. They they realize that DC and Marvel have got the lock on universes. Yeah. They just kind of do. And so they're going to offer something a little different and that's why they survive. But man, this this thing, man, this is just I've never done cocaine, but this is I imagine what it's kind of got yeah. a, it got a little bit like It's in their credit like IDW Dark Horse especially Dark Horse built its foundation on licensed properties. Right. I mean, they had titles that were out before they started picking up licensed properties. But I can guarantee you that with the exception of people who were really collecting back in the late 80s, most people's first Dark Horse comic probably was Aliens, Predator, or Terminator. Mm. You know, mine was an Aliens comic. I was in the comic store one day. This was like 89. It was like issue four or five of the first Black and White Aliens series that was I still fucking love. It's just I love that series, and I have the first Mark Verheiden. <laughs> it's great. It's great stuff. It's like you know, just it's one of those really really good stories. But you know, they they made their they made their mark, or they they just started making their money with that, and it, it allowed them to shore up you know, um, you know, other stuff, um, especially as some of the other independent publishers at the time were going were going under. Like Comico was publishing Grendel, oh, yeah. and they had done Robotech and stuff like that. And I've read that Grendel Just stuff. Machines. Just Machines. <laughs> the Elementals and all that. Um, and some of that was really good. Gren- Matt Wagner's Grendel is like uh, is amazing. Like Dark Horse has reprinted it. They're doing a, currently doing a he's doing an eight issue series, whatever. I've been buying it. I've been like this is it picks up where the other one left off. And the fact that you can take like this character who was kind of a pastiche of Batman, Daredevil, the Punisher, like, you know, this Hunter Rose character, and you've gotten now it's so far into the future 
and it's this whole other concept. It's it's a really you know Grendel's some really really good stuff if you can find the reprints somewhere. Um, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. But then I, I like yeah. But that back. But if you look, if you flip through previews, and I get previews every month, and I do flip through some of the more the 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 back you know the the individual comic companies, the ones that and some of them some of these things are still out there. Boundless Comics <laughs> with its you could order the dirty cover. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, it's then. It's just like, you know, this is the story that – it's the comic version of I never thought these letters were true, but the other day I had an experience that totally changed my mind. Um, <laughs> you know, some of these comics are still out there. But, yeah, you're right. They're, they're, the, the road is littered with them, and the road next to it is littered with baseball card and trading company. <laughs> trading card company. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, so to wrap this up, because that will do it, I, I don't want us to drag out our misery here. We, we've, we've, we've toppled the feats of strength. Um, before we go – though something I've always done at the end of these episodes was to take us out on a, a nice note um, is just to ask you flat out what is something that you like to do every Christmas something you're looking forward to this holiday season um, you know just kind of so you know it's it's just about Christmas what are you uh, what are you looking forward to uh boy that's a good question uh i i mean there's certainly a lot of the same movies i watch every year that i kind of only pull out uh at christmas so there's like there's there's that but uh just actually a couple days from now um i am going over to uh my my friend Corey's house cory has been on a bunch of our uh, fire and water podcast shows so uh-huh. some of you know who he is uh and we are going to be uh do, doing a big group watch of white christmas which is one of my all-time favorite not is my favorite christmas movie it's one of my all-time favorite movies period and uh cory and his girlfriend jamie have a bunch of dogs and i'm currently dogless right now so that'll be fun and we're gonna we're gonna go over there and just have a good time and i hope that that maybe becomes an annual tradition where we go over there and and watch that together because i that movie makes me happy and to be able to watch it with a bunch of people it makes me uh, extra happy so i i hope that's the beginning of a of a uh of of a holiday tradition nice yeah we we um we have our movies um we always watch a version of the Nutcracker. I, I've seen it live. Uh, it's just, you know, and I recently read Gene Shepard's book, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, which is the basis <laughs> for a Christmas story. And it's it's funny. Some of it's very dated because it was written back in the 60s. But some of it is really funny because the Christmas story is my favorite Christmas movie. I saw it in the theater. So I read the book. I'd been wanting to read the book for years. And I read the I read the essay where his dad gets the leg lamp. You know, Fragile. And it didn't occur to me, and I didn't know this, because they don't mention it in the the movie, but he won a contest, you know, in a newspaper. The contest, as mentioned in the essay that he wrote, was sponsored by Nehi, the cola company. You know, they used to make grape and orange and stuff. Of course. Nehi's emblem at the time in the Depression was a leg with a stocking. So oh, wow. the leg lamp is an advertisement for Nehi Cola, and he won essentially swag from the company, which parallels the fact that later on in the movie, Ralphie gets his major award, the little orphan Annie decoder. Oh, ring, the Ovaltine. The, the yeah. Ovaltine. And I'm like, I, I've watched this movie for 30 years, and it just dawned on me that this this parallel between the two the two things in the movie that like his dad like this is a major award and everything and I'm like you have an advertisement and later on your son's sitting in the bathroom he's like a crummy commercial son of a bitch 
I never knew I never that. Knew that I had no idea. And I'm even yes, familiar. I'm familiar with grape knee high because, of course, that was Raider O'Reilly's favorite drink. Yeah. So I never. So wow. I've, yeah. I've learned something yeah. new. So, but no, I, I love that movie. I love the look on Darren McGavin's face when Ralphie opens up the BB gun. And watching him watch Ralphie put the BBs in, and I'm not a gun guy, and I'm not, but th- th- that moment, it's just like, it's one of those moments of joy in a movie because it's like this mm-hmm. whole moment. It's just there's such a there's a wholesomeness to that movie, which is ironic considering Bob Clark's previous movie was Porky's and um, <laughs> a varied film career that but, guy. <laughs> but it was just it's such a great film. My my son loves it too, and. Um, and uh, another movie we're looking forward to watching uh, because I, I bought Amanda the DVD, not the DVD, the Blu-ray earlier this year is Anti Mame. So, <laughs> oh, another yeah, one of my of us favorites. love that movie. We, we used to catch it on cable every once in a while, and we had a conversation. It's like, is that on Blu-ray? I was like, it is out on Blu-ray. So we had the Blu-ray ready to go for Christmas. So awesome! I love that. I love that movie. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to. Stuff like that too. Doing my Christmas Eve tradition of mulled wine and. Rick Steve's European Christmas. <laughs> you understand you're talking about the Great British Bake Off and man, like I watch so much just PBS and PBS create stuff because it's just like I don't have to deal with you know, it's it's late. I just want to watch something soothing and chill. I people being nice yeah, to each other or people enjoying things. It's kind of just a nice it's thing to see. Your your travel dad walking around Europe telling you like where to go in London, you know, it's just it's just so nice. Antiques Roadshow, you know, it's it's all about that. So <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for coming on. Um oh, I, thank you for having me. This was a blast. I really appreciate it. And uh, I want everybody to I'll be back in January, of course, with another episode. Watch for a blog post on New Year's Eve because I always do one. But I do want to leave on this note. Um, I want everyone to have a safe, happy, healthy holiday season. And there really is no way to other way to say this except 2020 is going to suck. <laughs> it's just it's going to be very tumultuous. It's going to be very tough to get through for a lot of people. And it's odd to quote this man, considering what a shit show. Well, actually, considering what a shit show next year and what a fight next year might be be uh might be i think i should quote this man because he built a living on fights on a shit show and in the wise words of the reverend dr jerry springer take care of yourself and each other because seriously we're gonna need something to get through these next 12 months so good night thank you for listening and take care Put on your brave face, honey, your brave face, honey, and get ready for the end of the world. Put on your best clothes, take a deep breath, don't bury your head and draw yourself up tall. It might hurt a bit, but don't you forget that this too shall pass if we survive. So put on your brave face, honey, your brave face, honey, and we'll make it to the other side. Make me a promise that when the world Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. 
If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.